Welcome back to Medic in the Middle. Welcome back to part two of the Cat Hemorrhage podcast. Um, we are still joined by Ryan Ferris, our CCP with the HEMS team. We're going to get stuck into part two of this episode, which covers fluid management, uh, management of hypovolemic or hypotensive patients. Uh, we're going to look into TXA, we're going to talk a little bit about blood products carried by the enhanced care teams, and we're also going to look at oxygenation of the trauma patient. Um, should we talk a little bit about fluids and uh, like fluid management in these patients um, once we've gained IV access? So high volume fluid therapy for uh, treatment of hypovolemia or hypotension um, in traumatic hemorrhage has sort of been a standard approach for the past few decades. Um, and it's even kind of historically been uh, promoted and accepted by sort of ATLS, GRCALC and, yep. and, and such things. Um, more recently, and in more recent times, management's kind of steered away from high volumes of, of, of crystalloid fluids. Um, although I know certain literature does state, uh, I think GR Calcium says you can give up to two liters of saline fluids, but it kind of is, is steering away from that a little bit. And GR Calcium updated their, their guidelines to sort of allow for um, permissive hypotension yeah. uh, in, in these kind of patients. Because uh, we don't want to be causing the patient any kind of iatrogenic injuries as a result of overloading them with fluids. Uh, so permissive hypotension is, uh, for those who don't know, I'm sure most of you do, um, but permissive hypotension is the maintenance of a lower than normal physiologically accepted blood pressure. And it aims to maintain uh, organ perfusion, uh, but prevent any further hemorrhage or blood loss um, from a patient who is bleeding. Uh, the concept itself has been around since the early 1900s, uh, but in more recent years, it's been uh, shown to be more effective and kind of widely, widely utilised um, in the civilian setting. Uh, I know it's kind of it's been used in the military for quite some time. I think uh, permissive hypotension typically maintains a systolic between kind of 60 and 90, depending on which guidelines you're following. Um, always check your your local guidelines and your local protocols for that. Uh, but maintaining a BP at these lower ranges allows for compensatory mechanisms to continue, uh, whilst more definitive management of blood loss and hemorrhage control is arranged, um, such as surgical interventions or uh, arrangement of blood products to seen if locally available. Um, do you want to talk us through a little bit about um, that? Kind of, well, what's available to you in in your kind of area, and maybe we'll touch a, a little bit upon why we shouldn't be overloaded in the patients with fluids um, as well. We won't kind of delve into it too much because we can kind of go into uh, fluid management in a whole podcast of itself. But I think just the basic um, trauma trial of death or the basic kind of diamond, was it you said it was earlier? Yeah, yeah, I think... Um... I think diamond sounds prettier. <laughs> <laughs> the diamond of death. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, I think we, we can touch on that and how that sort of exacerbates or sort of... or worsens morbidity mortality from from trauma but yeah i think i think as you rightly say i think 
fluid management within trauma. It's probably a podcast within itself. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. I think hundred percent. We're we're not going to really um, give any definitive answers on this this evening and. Again, we keep, I keep referring back to Twitter. I say I know nothing about Twitter, but I flick through it hours on day. And you've got the page or the core of people who are holy. There should be no fluids, no crystalloids within the trauma cohorts. And you've got the patients who yes, you must give crystalloids, and then there's very little in between. So it is a it's an area of contention at the moment, and I think probably presents quite a bit of challenge and confusion to a lot of clinicians as to what is the, the best approach yeah. to manage these yeah, trauma patients. Sure. And you alluded to these, this sort of concept of permissive hypotension, which is really important. Um, and from my own perspective, my sort of indication or my threshold for considering fluid therapy in, in the trauma cohort or in the trauma patient, excuse me, is, is sort of their level of mentation Mm-hmm. Um, are they cerebrating? Is their level of consciousness affected? If I've got a patient who has got a blood pressure of 60 systolic, but they're GCS 14, they're GCS 15, they're still having a conversation with me, then there's enough perfusion within their body for yeah. them to remain lucid. So it's probably unlikely that these patients need fluid therapy at this point. Um, and again, as, as you said, there, there's, there's huge risks when we consider administering crystalloid uh, to to this patient cohort. And when I think about sort of the ambulance service, because we're talking about a bit of a pre-hospital setting, um, if we keep it even really simple, these fluids are stored in a cold ambulance overnight, especially when it gets to the winter. These fluids are cold. The ambulance service, definitely with my own local area, they don't carry fluid warmers. So we're administering cold, really ice cold fluids in in some situations to these patients. to to patients who need to be kept warm. (laughs) Well, exactly, this is it. And we know the the sort of negative effects that that hypothermia has on morbidity and mortality within the trauma cohort. Um, And we haven't got any means of warming those fluids. The the crystalloid that the ambulance crews carry, they haven't got any clotting factors. They've got no way of, um, they've got no oxygen carrying capacity. Um, and as you say, the, the degree of fluid therapy that we do in, in some of the literature and definitely within some of the ambulance service guidance, such as GR Calc, although it does allude to this sort of concept of impaired major organ dysfunction, but it can suggest quite high levels of fluid. And when we start to think about this long term and the risk of sort of disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, there's, there's loads of risks Ooh. with fluids. Um, that's a big one. <laughs> as I say, I think it's it's a whole other podcast because it's yeah, it's know. such a vast concept. Yeah, but I think as a as a side note, you know, if people do go and check out. Um, well, we we may end up kind of revisiting this and doing a, a podcast on fluids. Who knows? But um, if you are interested in this area, go go ahead and and, and check out the um, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy or DIC, as as, as Ryan's just alluded to, or go and go out and go and check out the the trauma triangle or the trauma triad or the whatever it's called the trauma diamond of, of diamond. death yeah and um there is there's a lot of literature out there available available at the moment to you yeah yeah definitely and i think it's probably worth just noting because we've mentioned it i mean it's been a long time since i've alluded to the, the triad or the diamond but again in the twitter sphere world it's it's, it's quite key isn't it? it's mm. quite hot topics but the the sort of the addition of hypocalcemia has, has been added to the triad as sort of a, a huge factor. I didn't know that actually. Um, no. Within sort of trauma care and just the importance of maintaining sort of normal calcium levels mm-hmm. and if we sort of go back to sort of 
sort of basic physiology we know that there's a number of functions within our body which are dependent on calcium and calcium in itself it's got an inotropic property so contract or excuse me cardiac contractility it's dependent on calcium platelet functions dependent on calcium hemostasis it's dependent on calcium and if we have a patient who's exsanguinated, so they're losing blood from somewhere, well, then they are becoming depleted of calcium. Mm-hmm. And as such, they these normal hemostasis process, these functions, they're becoming deranged and not as effective. And if we hemodilute these patients anymore, presumably that's going to worsen that. Exactly, exactly that. If we hemodilute them with fluids or even within our setting, so we carry um, fresh frozen plasma and packed red blood cells, but this blood it contains citrate and the citrate within that blood that in itself is also going to deplete the calcium so it's a sort of vicious cycle so there's we alongside administering blood products we would carry uh, calcium and we give these patients calcium to try and maintain those normal levels Mm. to try and normalize their calcium levels as well interesting um what else are we going to talk about are you are you kind of happy we've gone through fluids um, to to the to, to the extent we can kind of cover it on today's yeah I think so I don't I don't think we can cover it in its entirety I think I'd be wrong of us to try and do so no. in, in in a short podcast but I think as you said go away look at your guidance yeah even just check out your GRCalc guidance as well because that's got quite a lot of uh, stuff that they've added to it now on on permissive hypotension hasn't it and it's got different categories for truncal injuries limb injuries uh, and this head is injuries and, yeah. and dif- different guidance for different have an awareness of the thresholds yeah understand the process and have an understanding of why we we aim for this permissive hypotension um and and then i think we can build upon that perhaps on on a a later podcast as you say yeah absolutely um what was i going to mention next Uh, txa something we probably should uh bring up it's quite a big part of the management in uh, the bleeding trauma patients um so txa or tranexamic acid um it was actually well just a bit of history on it it was actually invented in japan in 1962 uh, and it was used at the time of invention for mild bleeding um menstruation or it was used in dentistry quite a lot as well for tooth extraction but in more recent times it's become more heavily used um in, in sort of other areas for, for, for trauma management and the bleeding trauma patient. Uh, so TXA is an anti-fibrinolytic. Uh, it works um, in a basic, so to give you a basic sense of how it works, there's a, a, a lot more in depth you can go into with the, with the clotting cascades and etc. But it works essentially by binding to plasminogen, um, which then inhibits the interaction between plasmin and the fibrin surfaces and, and stops that that breakdown of the fibrin mesh, so it, it has an anti-fibrinolytic effect, um, thus preventing further hemorrhage. But if you want to go into it further, um, websites like uh, Drug Bank are really good for providing um, sort of pharmacodynamic uh, explanations of it. But I want to keep it kind of fairly stripped back. I don't want to go too heavy with the clotting cascade because again, that is a topic for its own podcast in itself. Um, so there was a really good trial called the CRASH-2 trial that was done a few years ago um, looking into TXA. Um, they essentially um, showed that TXA improved mortality 
it wasn't associated with any increased uh, vascular occlusions or sort of vascular side effects and it decreased the amount of blood products necessary to resuscitate patients. Uh, it also showed that if it's given within the first three hours it is the most effective and I think local guidance certainly where I work states that we shouldn't be giving it um, if the if the injury has taken place sort of any any sort of longer than three hours ago yeah. prior to us getting there um, it is a PGD for um, most paramedics so just make sure you know your indications for giving it um, as it's not uh, directly in the jail calc under the HMR kind of uh, administration so just make sure you know your guidelines if you're giving it under your PGD any any other kind of thoughts on on TXA administration? Uh, other, other obviously dosage we give one gram uh, of TXA over, over ten minutes is is what the guidelines state. Yeah, no, I think I think it's probably it's worth emphasizing again just sort of the effectiveness of TXA and, mm-hmm. and how it's it's so much more effective the sooner we give it to the bleeding patients and we know. That for every, um, I think it's is it every twenty, every fifteen minutes delay, it becomes the, the effectiveness yes. of TXA reduces by about ten yeah, percent is yeah, what the literature yeah. states. Um, so, as long as it's not detracting from those life-saving interventions, we should be aiming to give that almost under that sort of circulatory assessment of our trauma patient, and give it earlier. Yeah, absolutely. I think like you like we said earlier, if you've got team large enough on scene or you know you've got a few people there you can be undertaking good kind of conducive action whilst other things are being done you can have somebody drawing up your TXA for you whilst you're taking Mm. care of immediate cat hemorrhage control and and, and things like that with direct pressure so yeah the sooner you can uh, smash in some TXA the the, the better or the more effective it's going to be yeah and probably just on the back if you mentioned the crash 2 trial it's probably worth again it's not solely in line with hemorrhage control but looking at the crash free trial and sort of the wider indications for TXA now within the, the traumatic brain injured patient yeah the isolated injury yeah absolutely yeah. that's definitely worth going to check out um, oxygenation is another one on my list that we could talk about um, an O2 therapy in the trauma patient unless you've got anything else you want to kind of uh, go through with TXA uh, no, I think I think it's probably something that people are very sort of comfortable with now and, and, and familiar and understanding with with um, the process of it. I think it's been emphasised so much over the last few years. I think the, the importance is just, again, that emphasis on the importance of getting it earlier rather than later. Mm-hmm. Don't let it detract from the life-saving procedures that you need to undertake um, and just an awareness of sort of the, the wider scope of indications that are now available for TXA. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so oxygenation, uh, I think this has been a topic of debate for a little bit, and I think there's still some confusion around uh, indications for O2 therapy. Um, you know, we we see a lot um, of people giving, uh, you know, 100% O2 for a non a non rebreather trauma mask quite often to trauma patients. Um, however, the literature out there. And the, the, the evidence out there kind of suggests that it's not actually really that beneficial to our patient. And in some cases, uh, which we'll come on to, it can actually have a, a detrimental effect. Um, so there was a study conducted uh, as a retrospective observational study of patients admitted to the University Hospital of Southampton. 
which is a designated MTC. Uh, so the aim of, was to uh, this study was to investigate whether hyperoxia, so overoxygenation, um, within the first 24 hours of admission following a major trauma was associated um, and how it, it kind of related to the 30-day in-hospital mortality. Um, so retrospective database study of trauma patients that was admitted to the ICU at the University of Southampton from October 2008 to October 2014. Um, hyperoxia was defined as one arterial blood gas with a partial pressure of oxygen more than 40 uh, kilopascals during the first 24 hours of admission. Uh, 343 patients met the inclusion criteria um, of which 265 were defined as normoxic and the remaining 78 patients were hyperoxic. Um, the cumulative in-hospital risk of death within 30 days uh, was 7.8% with a confidence interval of 4.9 uh, to 12.5%. Um, and for the normoxia group, it was 9.7. Sampled out of the 343 patients in total, hyperoxia within the first 24 hours following admission to intensive care within the MTC had no impact on the 30-day in-hospital mortality. So overoxygenation of these patients in this study uh, had no benefit uh, whatsoever to the impact of the 30-day in-hospital mortality. Uh, there was another study done, or a systematic review done, by S. Skezen um, et al. Uh, 2018. They did a systematic review, um, the initial use of supplementary oxygen for trauma patients, and this was in the BMJ. They concluded from the systematic review um, the evidence for the use of supplementary oxygen for spontaneously breathing uh, trauma patients who already have a SpO2 of higher than 94% is lacking um, and the evidence for low versus high um, FiO2 for the intubated trauma patient is also limited. Um, I mentioned earlier about how hyperoxia can be damaging in particular patients in certain cohorts. Uh, there's a really good uh, podcast by Femcast, the guys over at Femcast, so go and have a listen to that. They do a really good podcast on hyperoxia, uh, but they discussed particularly in a traumatic brain injury uh, where high blood flow is needed. By giving patients loads and loads of oxygen, we risk the side effects of vasoconstriction, so we end up with less blood um, perfusing the brain if that makes sense we get less of a blood flow due to that the, those vasos uh, the vasoconstriction there so you end up with a higher partial pressure of oxygen in the blood but we're getting less of that blood through to the brain because of the vasoconstriction so on the flip side of that if we withhold supplementary oxygen we, we're kind of getting more blood through to perfuse the brain due to that kind of more more dilated vasculature admittedly it's going to have it's going to be less saturated with oxygen uh, potentially um, but it's better to have more blood going through the circulation that has a lower partial pressure of oxygen than to have a very small amount going through that has a higher partial pressure of oxygen um, any thoughts anything to add yeah no i think again it's so I must admit, uh, the literature I've read around 
supplemental oxygen therapy is been primarily within the ITU, the ICU setting, within the, the critical, um, within the critically ill patient cohort, um, and the sort of negative effects of hyperoxemia. And I think the biggest take home from from what we're sort of saying and sort of to recap it and my own personal sort of anecdotal approach to these patients and I think within the context of this podcast when we're talking about the hemorrhaging patient, the patient who is losing blood, it again it's it's apply a trial of titration. Mm. <laughs> we we can always reduce the oxygen and we can always increase the oxygen. My own personal stance is I will aim for a, a normal level of oxygen, so between that 94 to 98, with my, my even with my trauma cohort of patient. Um, as you rightly say, um, if we undertake a, a rapid sequence induction within the traumatic brain injured patient, we'll, we'll always try and reduce our FiO2, so a fraction of inspired oxygen, as low as we can to maintain that normal oxygen levels due to the sort of the negative effects that you said, hyperoxemia can present to these traumatic brain injured patients so the vasoconstriction the reduction in sort of a cerebral perfusion yeah but no i think even within the major trauma cohort or the the exsanguinated patient cohort i'll admit i haven't read vast amounts of literature around it recently but um, my approach would be to aim for that normal oxygen aim from 94 to 98 percent yeah no me too Um, well, I think unless there's anything else you'd like to kind of ask, um, I think that kind of that rounds up the podcast, really. Yeah, no, I think hopefully, hopefully we've got some some key points around sort of the, the basic management of, of hemorrhage control. I think you've probably caused yourself a bit of work by identifying other areas for, <laughs> for your podcast and yeah. uh, oh, fluid oh, therapy and TXA, etc., to name a few that you've yeah. mentioned throughout um, but no, I think the, the, the important thing with this is, I think, take away the key points, but, but go and do the background reading, as you've alluded to, the show notes, the references will be there, and I think um, just, just yeah, read around a bit further the, the topics in which in which we've talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cheers, Ralph, coming down. No, thank really you. Thanks for having us. Great to have you back again. Cool, and uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time.